Hi friends, welcome to Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. I'm excited to share this interview with you. I got to sit down with Randall Miller. Randall is an incredible leader, uh, thought leader at that, strategist, activist, uh, and he has been involved in the United Methodist Church for decades. He has served at multiple levels of the church, multiple boards and commissions and committees. And of many things that's remarkable about Randall, it's the fact that he is an out gay African-American man that has so much history with our church. And that's why I wanted to sit down with him. I wanted to get an understanding the history of LGBTQ resistance and the work that has been done over the decades in the United Methodist Church towards inclusion of queer folk in, our, in the life of our church. And so we did, uh, he gave me some time and like many of these interviews, it was two hours of just incredible content. In fact, y'all, it was so good. I couldn't find a place to edit. I couldn't figure out what not to include. So I just decided that uh, just gonna make this a two-parter. So I'm not gonna spend much more time in this introduction. We'll just go right into it. Grab a notebook, choice beverage and get ready. Like this really helped me understand how we got to this particular place in the life of the United Methodist Church. So without further ado, I present to you part one of my interview with Randall Miller. Enjoy. Randall Miller, how you doing today? I am doing really well, especially because it's the getting near the end of the working day. So I love this is my special time. <laughs> well, I hope to not take too much of your time, but I really appreciate you being willing to jump in uh, on bar of the conference. Uh, really, um, just personally appreciate so much of what you bring to the United Methodist Church, your leadership. I mean, I think in many, many ways, I want to be Randall Miller when I grow up. And, and, I, and, I, and there's some obvious things. <laughs> and then there's some other things like, no, really, like you, there's um, just a, a competence that you bring um, that I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of and, and I admire. And, and so doubly grateful that you're willing to join me on this uh, podcast and have a bit of a conversation. Um, how long have you been a part of the United Methodist Church? Uh, since I was 16. So let's see, where am I now? So almost 45 years. Okay. 45 the, years. That is, I, and we're not going to take the, the road trip <laughs> through the entire 45 years, but my sense is, and, and this is the particular reason I wanted to have a conversation with you, is that you have been engaged in many aspects of the church, um, as a as a lay person, as a leader, but also and and also in in uh, resistance of of racism and white supremacy across many years, but also as a gay man, and that's what I'd love for us to talk about uh, in this conversation. To because I think a lot of us have come to this moment in the United Methodist Church 
And as it is with all of us, we just think that the issues that we're facing are these brand new issues. And we're the only ones who've ever been thinking about them, pushing back against them. And so we just don't have a, a huge sense um, or a clear sense rather of where we fall in the history mm -hmm. and, and whose shoulders we are standing on top of, um, who's done a lot of the hard work. And I can, I can name, yeah, I came out uh, as a gay man two and a half years ago um, and, and I knew that by doing that, that could affect my roles in the United Methodist Church from my local church all the way to general church. And I can honestly say I, I, I didn't lose as much when I came out, but I'm clear that the reason why is because of probably hundreds of people in the United Methodist Church who came out and who lost much and, and blazed that trail with tears and pain so that me coming out was more affirmative than um, destructive to my, to my being. And so I, 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 again, this is where my appreciation for you just goes through the roof, but I thought it would be good if we got a bit of a history of LGBTQ plus uh, resistance mm -hmm. um, and understanding the story that gets us to this particular moment right. in United Methodism. So <clears throat> I've got my notebook, I'm here to learn and, and you can kind of take us in what direction and, and whatever you want. And like, I'll, I'll uh, probably drop in and like ask a question or double click on something that I think is really um, interesting that we want to amplify. But I, tell us where to start. Like when we start thinking about LGBTQ, queer inclusion in the United Methodist Church, what is our history and where do we want to start that conversation? Yeah, and I think um, the real focused history. So uh, obviously there have been LGBTQ plus people in the history of the United Methodist Church throughout. And, uh, you know, uh, for most of that history, those individuals were closeted or there was no words to describe, you know, the identity and sexual orientation or gender identity um, that they held within themselves. But um, uh, uh, throughout uh, the history, there have been LG, what we would now call queer folk in, in the United Methodist Church and in its predecessor bodies. So um, the, uh, that that's uh, pretty clear from sort of looking at the history. The real focused advocacy though uh, around um, uh, the United Methodist Church probably dates back from the early 70s, late 60s. And um, the uh, way before my time, by the way, so uh, I don't include myself in the earliest layer of this history. I'm noted, it is noted, yes. Um, uh, and in fact, by the time I came along, so well, let me tell the story in order. So um, there was a group of, uh, of clergy, of uh, folks who aspired to be clergy or who were clergy, who uh, short, in the 1970s began to be sort of expelled or, uh, or having uh, their ordination credentials taken or didn't make it through the ordination process. Uh, and they could have, this is way back in the early 70s, they could have gone away, they could have um, uh, slunk off, but instead they started this history of protest uh, at their annual conferences and at their uh, general conferences. And so 
that earliest core group of folks were um, these uh, clergy or aspiring to be clergy who were just denied their calling. And uh, as you said, um, that denial of calling was a source of deep pain for all of them because uh, I didn't meet all of them. I've heard the stories, but I've met some. And really they, their vocation was to serve as clergy in local churches. They didn't have another sense of vocation. And so um, the church denying the, the, that calling while in some cases saying, well, you certainly have the gifts to be a pastor if only you weren't gay or um or lesbian at that time uh you we would certainly welcome you into the united Methodist church um or um hinting at a kind of don't ask don't tell just don't be public about that and sort of live a closeted life and you'll be okay and um, you know, it was the 70s where the uh, queer revolution, LGBTQ plus revolution was taking off. And to their credit, that small group of activists refused to do that, refused to slink away. And uh, for years, <laughs> protested in uh, outside annual conference and general conference. And that really began, I think, what was the open resistance phase of uh, what we call now the reconciling movement. There, um, there was no, there was hope that the hearts and minds of United Methodists would change and therefore change the, the, the uh, anti-LGBT policies that were in the Book of Discipline and the anti-LGBT practices. But it felt like it was a very, very long way off. Um, and so, um, uh, and again, I'll say instead of going away, they practiced the art of resistance and made themselves um, publicly visible doing protests in their annual conferences, wearing their collars uh, pro and protesting at general conference, knowing full well um, the reception they would meet there, which was either um, uh, kind of derision aimed at them or uh, even worse, that polite uh, ignoring of people that church people do. <laughs> when, you know, they want to ice out other people. So, mm -hmm. um, which is really difficult. So that was really the start uh, and uh, added to these layer of uh, clergy people. There were uh, one or two really brave bishops and probably um, who were supporting and uh, beginning to speak out uh, around um the harm that the, the incompatible language did to um, uh, gay and lesbian persons at that point. And um, they were uh, Mel, Bishop Mel Wheatley, uh, and then, um, <laughs> I can see his face, uh, Bishop Calvin McConnell. And both of those two bishops and their wives uh, were really, really active early on and faced the stigma and the shaming uh, and the, the um, complaints that were filed against them for being fairly outspoken supporters of LGBT inclusion back in the early 70s. Um, um, from that period uh, of that sort of those early clergy affirmation was kind of launched and affirmation was and is um, the unofficial 
uh, queer caucus of the United Methodist Church. And at the point it was launched in the United Methodist Church, that was the only organizing body that was led by LGBTQ folks uh, and uh, had a strong principle around self-determination uh, and uh, challenging the church to change its policies. So um, it was still in the nature of resistance. Again, people didn't really believe that the church would change, but, um, uh, but they hoped it would. And some people who joined Affirmation, there was both the national group, which had one or two uh, annual meetings each year. And then there were about 13 different local affirmation chapters around the country. Um, uh, and all of those were really thriving in the 70s and early 80s and uh, practicing forms of resistance and uh, uh, embracing uh, civil disobedience practices to peacefully disrupt the business of the church. And so that's also when the, the first kind of um, uh, protests, but really they were polite, quiet, walking onto the floor of general conference and uh, uh, with signs and singing and praying for um, LGBT inclusion and uh, uh, letting the church know that they needed to change. That's when those protests mm. first started. And again, the composition of the general conference was very different than now. There, yeah, there were conservatives mm -hmm. uh, who weren't as well organized. There were actually uh, centrists and moderates who didn't know what to think about these issues. And then there were LGBTQ plus and our allies, uh, which was the smallest of the groups mm. <laughs> at, at General Conference. So, um, so that really, for about a, a decade or more, that phase of resistance was really... Um, uh, it, I, I have to say it was thrilling because we really practiced church and lived our values. It's not that we didn't disagree with each other about which way liberation was headed. And there we mm. always had people who were focused on sort of practical outcomes and people who were uh, more focused on sort of uh, queer liberation, meaning changing the culture. Um, we had people who identified as um, more identified more as Christians then. Uh, we had people, particularly women, who had been rejected by the church, who had embraced some forms of paganism as well, but were mm. still in the broad fellowship of um, mm -hmm. of affirmation. And um, so, it really was a very uh, powerful time of organizing, mostly outside the church and witnessing to the church about the need for greater inclusion. Wow. Randall, this, uh, thank you for this. There's so many questions I've got. I, I, I do wanna zero in on this particular piece. What year did the incompatibility language get added to the Book of Discipline? 1972. Yeah. So yeah, uh, four years after the unification conference. And I, I wonder, and this is a speculative, at best, probably, but was the forming of affirmation and the beginning of the organizing, was that in response to the language being added? And or you mentioned a bit ago the the ways that even the church would sort of ignore 
and and distance themselves from individuals. And I I, I just I'd love for you to respond to that because I think there's a there's a mindset that says, well, people got upset when things changed in the book of discipline. And I wonder if it was much more like basic and like human and and just like emotional. Like, no, people felt excluded at a very basic level of church life. Yes. And it required a response. What, 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 do you, what do you say to that? Yeah, I don't, uh, I think people mistake that the, the putting of the language in the discipline was actually kind of the start of the homophobia writ large, and it was not. So um, it, uh, uh, in, the, in various annual conferences, even the ones that we think of as being very progressive now, um, they're, uh, they're, uh, there was nobody who was getting ordained who was out or uh, who, uh, about whom there were rumors about their sexuality or, um, or uh, boards of ordination would notice that you weren't married. <laughs> and so all of these were sort of like red flags. I know when I was in the ordination process a decade later, it's still the fact that I was not married uh, at age 22 uh, was a red flag. It's like, really? At age 22? <laughs> I've got to be married. But um, no, I, I think it it was a response to um, what was happening in the church at the local annual conference and general conference level. Um, and then the other thing that people don't remember or forget is that actually the language going into the first language that turned into the incompatibility clause was affirming language about different kinds of sexuality. So uh, when the, the social principles were uh, rewritten, that, that, that paragraph was written as an affirming statement about human sexuality. And it did not call out lesbian and gay people it just said human sexuality is a gift from god it's a sacred gift from god it did not say all that other stuff and it was on the floor of general conference that that basic affirmation which was written to be um, sex positive for lack of a better they they and they knew what they were doing they were not so uh it was on the floor of general conference where someone raised the question what does this mean about gay and lesbian people? And that's where the incompatibility uh, thing came from. It did not come from the committee that had revised the social mm. principles. So, wow. so that that was the start of the open conflict at the general church level around human sexuality. Uh, and it, it uh, I happened to be there as a youth delegate um, and, um, General Conference was very different then. It was primarily men, primarily white men, even though there was diversity creeping in. Um, and um, the it just was a very different place. So, um, and uh, it just turned out they were unwilling to embrace this sort of very positive, a generally positive statement about human sexuality that was meant to be adopted. So um, again, it wasn't right. homophobia started there. The homophobia got codified there, mm. the but it, what didn't start, it was already happening and people yeah. were already denied ordination. So, right. um, so, uh, and again, the, 
um, the affirmation chapters were flourishing at that point. You know, uh, LGBTQ people were finding each other in the context of the Methodist church. And there were some huge chapters and the largest ones were actually in like the Southeast and South Central. So um, there were large ones in the Northeast as well and certainly in the West, but the largest chapter of affirmation was the, the one based in Dallas, Texas. And uh, it was uh, almost in a way evangelical as well, but they, they happened to be uh, mostly uh, gay men. So I have to say that there were very few people of color involved in affirmation at that time. So uh, when I went to my first meeting in the early 80s, national meeting in the early 80s, I was the only black person there. And <laughs> I remember um, trying to decide if I wanted to go to this gathering, it was in Washington, DC, and I circled the building three times in my rental car. And then finally I said, okay, I'm gonna go to this. And I walked in, I was like, there are only white people here. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Mm. I promise, lad, and lo and behold, there are only white people here. And uh, I think uh, my good friends, uh, people who became my good friends, um, Mary Gaddis, who is legendary in the movement, (laughs) and Judy Mm. Cayo, um, sort of recognized what was happening and made it their business to like make me their kind of uh, third partner for the weekends and sort of like introduce me around, take me around, sort of coach me about sort of the coming out process. And so, um, but it is true that affirmation itself uh, had a lot of problems attracting and maintaining people of color. Part of it was the number of people of color who were out and willing to be out in the context of the United Methodist Church, which is relatively few. And then those who were out, you know, they're like, why would I bother being half in and half out of the United Methodist Church? I'm going to go to someplace else. So in those days, it felt like we had two competing strategies. One was that if you had been harmed enough, I don't think they were competing, interlinked strategies. If you had been harmed enough and traumatized by the United Methodist Church, we were going to help you get out. And I actually preached a sermon during that time where I compared it to the Underground Railroad. So if you have been harmed and what you need is freedom and liberation in your life, and the United Methodist Church cannot, will not, in your opinion, in the foreseeable Uh, future provide that for you, you should find another spiritual home that will give you what you need and not feel like it was an abusive relationship. Uh, And there were many people wounded who really needed to hear that kind of liberating thing about stay connected to us, but find another spiritual home, one that you don't. And then the other strategy was um, we have no choice. We don't think we have the numbers to change any policies in the United Methodist Church. And actually what was happening was the anti-LGBTQ plus policies were proliferating. So we started with the incompatibility clause, and then came the restrictions on ordination, and then came this, and then, you know, over the next kind of 10 or 12 years, they actually 
proliferated until they are what they are now. And so, but, uh, but uh, we, those of us who want to witness to the United Methodist Church about our own liberation and the power of being open and queer, hang out. We are going to do training around uh, civil disobedience where we don't other these people who seem to hate us, but do a prayerful, gentle witness about that. So we're going to do so civil disobedience. We're not going to uh, engage in any physical fight. We're not going to yell back at people. We're going to offer a peaceful witness to who we are. And um, so, and hope to change hearts and minds in the church. So that, uh, and for a long time, I would have said we were, I was so deeply immersed in that and it was such a rich and formative time in uh, the local churches that were beginning to be inclusive and in affirmation that I kind of felt like I could stay in that world forever. Like I could go to the general conference and protest and give witness, but really the world that I lived in was this kind of affirming world where LGBTQ plus people were doing it uh, for ourselves in terms of mm. describing our liberation. We were writing, you know, uh, liturgies and um, uh, there was a Beth Richardson, who I don't know if you know, and Mark mm -hmm. Bull, uh, were uh, had started this journal called Mana for the Journey, and it was it was just incredible because we had all of these like pent up theologians and would be pastors, yeah, like and they couldn't serve local churches for the most part. Although some folks were closeted in local churches, just kind of writing and thinking about what all this meant and like, putting it into this. Uh, this journal that would come out quarterly or something like that. And so it, in some ways, it was a very difficult time in terms of the relationship in the church. And uh, in another way, it was very formative and very rich as we created sort of this parallel community that intersected the church, but was not determined or controlled by the church. Mm. It just It was um, probably... The, uh, one of the most formative things that I experienced in terms of liberation and connecting with other queer folks in a spiritual affirmative space. Wow. And again, it was not that we did not have our difficulties and divides and things like that. <laughs> and, but affirmation did everything by consensus, which, you know, so that meant our meetings were like 10 hours long. Wow. <laughs> My gosh, I, mean, I just cannot imagine. I can't imagine, but I can't imagine. It was, you know, everyone was trained in consensus and we had facilitators, but it took a long time to come to uh, uh, any kind of key decisions. So, um, but it was still a very rich and formative time. And then uh, at the same time, uh, Mark Bowman, after, in 1982, I think, but, um, or 1986, because I was kind of fully there, um, started the reconciling movement. And um, it, uh, which were these churches that were ready to declare themselves welcoming places uh, for LGBTQ plus people. So 
I'm, I'm skipping over that there were debates about every time we expanded the, the types of people that were in the family or the coalition, mm -hmm. there were debates about that. So I also don't wanna uh, cover over that. And particularly, uh, we had a long debate about uh, trans inclusion, which I, I know will be hurtful to hear about to some of the folks and, and about bisexual folks. Mm. And um, to me, it seemed very clear from the beginning is like, look, if you are bisexual, okay, I, I believe you and you're a part of this movement because you know this is, this is a movement of resistance against, and then for trans people, it's like, yeah, and this is not, <laughs> This is not uh, even a question for me. Trans people need to be a part of the movement too because we're an open, welcoming, inclusive movement. And uh, we used, used the term sort of sexual and gender minorities then. And they were like in the tribe. And so it's like, it's not that we understand everything about what's going on with bi and trans people back then. But we certainly could learn, and the best way to learn is to like bring them in to talk about their own lives the same way that we have gay and lesbian folks have been talking about our lives in this organization and learning from each other for, you know, 15 years. Yeah. We most certainly hear the bi and trans person, but that was not shared by everyone. And it took us a couple of years to work ourselves to that sort of conclusions about being that we of all people needed to be open and welcoming. So I think that's so important to name Randall. I think sometimes uh, I, I, I can speak for myself. I often uh, on my journey of affirming queer identities, I often would see my friends and colleagues who were very strong in their advocacy. And my assumption was that they had sort of arrived to this place and, and I just wasn't there yet. And what, what I've learned is that we're all on our journeys yeah. of understanding each other and, and holding space for each other yes. and being okay with not, under, not having every single answer about a person's life to say, you are a child of God and person of worth. Yes. And yes, you, are called to the life of the church and yeah. we should make room for you. Like you didn't need to have all the answers to, to affirm that. No. Um, but it, 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 it was an eye-opening experience when I was, you know, happened to be in a room full of gay men who weren't completely sure about bisexuals yeah. and, and weren't ready to include trans folk in the conversation. Um, and then, you know, we, we we continue to learn, right? And so we've added to the letters, uh, and and we've we've added to, we've we've increased the circle of who's welcome in this space. Yeah. Um, when we talk about queerness, so I just yeah, I appreciate yeah. you naming that. Yeah, and part of it is doing your own and your own inner work. So mm -hmm. if the issue with trans folks is that you have not dealt with your own femininity or your the parts of you that are female identified, do that work. If that's why really at wow. the core, why you're not sort of uh, uh, interacting and partnering and friending trans folks, then do that work. Because that can't be the reason that people are kept out of community because you haven't done the work. And we all need to do that work. If, if you're, if you, imagine that 
uh, gayness is a rigid identity and therefore you can't have bisexual folks because they challenge the rigid boundaries of what you do the work. Gayness is not a rigid identity. There are lots of uh, varieties and forms of gaiety. And so uh, the, we can reach out and embrace and understand the, all of the varieties of bisexuality as well. So mm. it, I think it's really important for people to, including myself, because I had to do my work, mm. um, uh, to really kind of work through that and say, oh, yeah, I <laughs> right there with you. So, but it was a journey. It was not that overnight we all decided, oh yes, we're going to be this inclusive. So, um, but so the next phase probably of the work of the the struggle within the United Methodist Church was that um, uh, affirmation, which was this sort of self-determined space of. Um, uh, mostly gay men and lesbians sort of coming together in local chapters, it started to not work anymore. And I think it stopped working because more and more and more, particularly cities, started having more open possibilities for uh, queer folk to do things. And so you weren't just confined to um, affirmation if you were living in Dallas or Washington, D.C. And uh, there was competition, you know, for people's participation. And some people couldn't put up with the church stuff anymore, and they kind of drifted off. So affirmation began to decline, and each of its uh, local chapters began to decline pretty rapidly in the uh, mid-'80s. Um, and I should say that part of it was the uh, HIV pandemic. So a lot of folks, uh, especially gay men, who were active participants in affirmation uh, passed away from HIV AIDS during the height of the crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was also in many cases what propelled local churches to become reconciling because you know before you know before they knew it knew what had hit them they had people that they loved in their congregations who were now very ill with hiv and aids and uh, in many congregations women <laughs> organized mm-hmm. to take care of those people because all they knew was that they loved these men who were in their congregations and in their communities and they organized and then from that it's not hard to extrapolate to well why then wouldn't we be fully embracing uh lgbt people uh, regardless you know whether they were living with hiv or sick or whatever and so they became sort of uh the bedrock of creating these reconciling churches. And it was slow at first, but it, it, in many ways, looking back, the reconciling uh, movement and reconciling churches really took off during that era. And as affirmation declined and more churches became hospitable places, it hastened the decline of affirmation. The uh, reconciling churches began, became the focus of the movement and the place where um, gay and lesbian people, but also bisexual and transgender, that became the 
place where they were at home rather than affirmation. And so rather than being outside of the church, <clears throat> they were now inside a local United Methodist church that uh, yeah. we were now inside a local mm -hmm. United Methodist church that had embraced us. And that created this, uh, at first, um, the reconciling movement, it was strangely apolitical and didn't really take a, um, didn't really focus on, for example, ch changing the policies of the, of the general conference. That effort was actually led by MFSA for a long, long time. And what the reconciling uh, church program did, R RCP at that point, was to host a, <clears throat> a uh, what do you call it? Uh, a hospitali hospitality suite at mm -hmm. the conference where people could come and pick up resources and gather stuff and then the witness could be organized. But it wasn't explicitly um, in those days, our, our, our reconciling congregation program wasn't explicitly trying to change the policies of the general conference. That was really kind of affirmation, but especially MFSA at that point. Um, uh, and we began to shift from the witness, which we still do today, but just doing the protesting and the witnessing and the handing out of literature and resources to explicitly trying to change votes at the general conference. And so there were these two prongs that not always got along with each other, but, uh, and some people felt like they could not be doing the kind of policy work because they weren't that far out and couldn't be mm -hmm. caught on camera. But, um, and so that's when the two prongs, this was now in the uh, early nineties where those two things began to shape up and they're still around. We still do the witness and we still do the, changing um, changing of policies uh, and the book of discipline. And there are still people who do one and don't do the other. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I actually believe in both, but uh, I think my nature was to <laughs> like, I think it's time to get up and kind of change some of the policies. And mm -hmm. so in the nineties, uh, I think I spoke to the general conference three times in uh, talking to them once from the floor when <laughs> I was uh, co-leading the protest and then twice from the podium where I was asked to speak on the importance of LGBT civil rights. So the, mm. the strange, confusing, conflicting thing is even though the United Methodist Church has had since 1972 the incompatibility clause, homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. It has also affirmed the civil rights of gay and lesbian people. Yeah. So it was this strange kind of parallel where the church seemed for a long time absolutely clear on supporting the civil rights of, of gay and lesbian people. That's what the language that it did not have a whole alphabet but also opposed and didn't see how one, having the one statement, the incompatibility statement erodes the second. Mm -hmm. so, and uh, so some of our work was to show 
that the one erodes the second that you, when I spoke to the general conference about, um, about uh, the importance of uh, gay and lesbian civil rights. And we were doing that because we went to a, a city that opposed gay and lesbian civil rights. And so to counteract that, they asked a black gay man to come and speak about on the well, conference. About, that's one way to do it. Okay. <laughs> um, and I just said to them, um, you know, we very much appreciate that the church supports the civil rights of gay and lesbian people, but you must know that uh, treating us as second-class citizens in the United Methodist Church itself um, provides the exact opposite witness and, in fact, undermines the strong stance in terms of that you can't have a house that's built on both things. And mm -hmm. so one's got to move to, you've got to move towards embracing the other. So, um, and so we, I probably the bulk of our energy then from the, in the 90s and the 2000s was spent sort of fighting the good fight around changing the policies. Uh, we had very little success, uh, yeah. to be honest, but uh, that, uh, and so it kept, and it was very, very difficult because the, the by then good news had, had become more powerful than it once was. And was uh, control beginning to control blocks of delegates, which at that time point, we didn't control any delegates. <laughs> we didn't even have any, we didn't track delegates. We didn't reach out to see who would be voting for us. We didn't have any of that going on at that point. And um, the good news was not only sort of at that point, better organized than we were in terms of controlling delegates, because they had let's call it the societal consensus about sort of that LGBTQ plus people were not equal citizens going for them. Uh, but they did it in the, in the meanest ways possible. Um, so that it was not only that they were winning these votes, but they were um, rubbing our faces in that they were winning the votes and treating us as if we, you know, they, for a long time, they would not use the word gay or lesbian. They would just keep repeating homosexual, knowing full well that what the preference around what people wanted to be called. Uh, and it was a way of dehumanizing us. Uh, they would never refer to us as fellow Christians. It was always homosexual advocates, not wow. the person who went to so-and-so United Methodist Church down the street but and the with the implication that um, we were outside kind of agitators that we're not you know we weren't uh, uh, members of the church it's like no no we grew up here <laughs> nobody is coming to this mess who is like an adult openly gay lesbian person they're not coming to this church and coming into this mess because it's too messy so the only people around here are people who grew up in this church and who you know took the same vows of membership that y'all did who have been contributing tithes who are members of local churches that's really who we are and mm -hmm. for a long time they put a lot of energy into sort of painting us as outside agitators and strange. And, you know, we were a little, little hippie-ish. Like, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. And so it, it, it did feel like throughout the 90s and early 2000s, it was kind of a beating. And if there had been, I remember when Karen Danham, uh, her trial happened and what happened there, it, it, uh, there was a strong negative reaction in the general conference. And uh, it was like they put all the anti-LGBT legislation on one day on the plenary floor. And it just felt like an all day beating, you know, where they, we would get up and rally our delegates. And maybe we had a fourth of the delegates voting with us uh, or a third. And, but they, they had, you know, two thirds of the delegates and we would lose time after time again. And they would, you know, it did feel like they were kind of, rubbing our faces in it and sort of uh, doing the legislation in the harshest way possible. So it, it, it did not feel like, oh, we're principled people and we're, <laughs> we, yeah. we are principled people, but we just don't support LGBT equality. It felt really nasty and personal and uh, as if they were trying to deliver a knockout punch oh. to uh, our side of the equation. I just... I'm almost imagining myself in the room on a day full of anti-LGBTQ legislation yeah. uh, and just the, the weight of all of that. Can you remind us, uh, is it Karen? During that time, we actually tried to our best, uh, tried our best to not have things happen right before general conference that uh, would trigger like moderates at general conference. We knew the conservatives were against us, but um, our thoughts was, because we had seen it, that the conservative moder moderate block voting against repealing stuff or uh, would grow if people saw something like a clergy trial where the person got off. And I think what happened was it was in the West and Karen got off. Um, she, or she went through the trial and um, they gave her like an assignment to complete as her, her punishment, if you will. Mm. Um, and the assignment was, I think, sort of writing about what it meant to be an open lesbian in the United Methodist Church and the theological issues around that. And so, uh, which in those days would have been interpreted by moderates and um, conservatives alike as sort of a show trial uh, mm. and sort of not abiding by the rules of the Book of Discipline. And uh, it what it resulted in, and I'm not, I want to be clear, I'm not, blaming Karen or the folks who supported her through that trial process uh, uh, because she, you know, it happened when it happened. The spirit called her to resist and uh, tell people who she was and not hide. And uh, she chose to face the consequences of that. And it was a big sort of high profile clergy trial of the sort we haven't had for a while. And, um, it uh, it it did um, 
make the reaction at the general conference, the, the conservative moderate block of people voting for sort of the, to hold the line on anti-gay stuff did grow bigger. And yeah. they also were able to organize. <laughs> uh, and they said it was, you know, for so we wouldn't disturb the rest of the general conference, but they were also able to organize all of the legislation on one day, uh, all of the anti-LGBTQ legislation on one day. I think it was like seven or eight pieces. Wow. And so, which is, you know, on a, in a plenary, that's like an all day. So you have to organize the fight each piece of legislation one after the other, because that's why you're there. And it's like climbing up a hill when after the first one or two, you know you're not going to win. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you have to make a principled witness that you're not okay with what is happening and hopefully try and shame a few people who are going along with this that, you know, that uh, whatever you think you're doing, this is impossibly cruel to like seven times kind of reiterate uh, that people are not fully included in the United Methodist Church and to just keep going and allow it to happen. Um, so um, it was just, uh, and, but, and that was probably one of the more intense times, but other general conferences were like that in terms of just uh, the oomph that it took mm -hmm. to show up to battle against it and then to be outmaneuvered um, and I will say then, and then have the people who outmaneuvered you celebrate God, uh, Christ's great victory at the, you know, the United Methodist General Conference. Christ has nothing to do with the shenanigans that you all pulled on the floor of General Conference. So you could say Christ did it. Um, but so, uh, and that, yeah. you know, that was really the history for about 10 or 12 years um, until, uh, and I would say up until, uh, 2019, actually, that, that we were kind of in a stalemate that we couldn't repeal anything. Uh, and uh, it felt like uh, the uh, other side had gotten everything that they wanted. And we were just in this kind of detente, right? That's yeah. where we were. And um, then in that history, in that, from that view of history, 2019 was really the first time in a while that there was a concerted effort on the other side to move beyond what was already in the Book of Discipline, because there's a lot of anti-gay, uh, anti-LGBT stuff in the Book of Discipline already. And then they made a decision to add even more, sort of going after allies and all of this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was like, Really, what we have is not enough. You have to go further. Yeah. It was a pretty cynical effort to try and drive us one last time to drive uh, 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 LGBTQ plus people and our allies out of the church. That's what mm. we're doing. Before we, before we totally get to 2019, I want to ask a question about 2012. And I wasn't paying attention in the ways that I do now. Yeah. But there are some specific moments across general conferences that that yeah, I, I remember. And I remember at 2012, um, I think it was Adam Hamilton 
who stood at the mic. He might have been with somebody else. But the, the suggestion was that we are not of one mind in the United Methodist Church around human sexuality. And, and that, I don't know why for me that felt like an important moment. And I don't know if that fits, you know, again, <laughs> I'm just coming on the scene. So I've not seen, it could it could be that there were moments like that at prior general conferences that I just didn't see. But to me, it was like this one moment was like, oh, finally, somebody is speaking some sense about this. But tell me I'm wrong about that, Randall. No, I don't think you're wrong. I, I um, So I have, like everything, uh, there was contention around that strategy, but it was, um, uh, Adam was trying to be helpful. So I think he had recently undergone a change in his own perspectives and beliefs or was undergoing the change. And he thought that if at least we could acknowledge that we were not of one mind and put that in the book of discipline. So he was gonna, it was to add on to the, incompatibility clause that we are not of one mind, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and um, acknowledged that he, his belief was that this was a more accurate picture of who we actually were, are. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't a theological statement. It was a realist statement about who we actually are. Like mm -hmm. the, right now, the statement that I disagree with is a theological statement about the incompatibility uh, of uh, homosexuality with Christian teachings, but it is a theological statement. And Adam saw it as a, a kind of strategy, but also just uh, that we should replace that with an acknowledgement that we are not of one mind. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you, there was strong pushback, of course, against that. Right. And it, it was, uh, I think, correctly perceived by the conservatives. First of all, they just didn't want anything to change and they didn't want to lose anything. They didn't want to, you know, like we built up this, this wall of discrimination and we are not going to remove any block of it, no matter what you say. But I think they were right in perceiving that the incompatibility clause is the foundation for all of the other um, prescriptions against gay and lesbian people in the book of discipline. And if you change or remove that, then there is ample ground to challenge why the other things would be there because mm -hmm. uh, you have removed the, uh, theoretically, you've removed the theological foundation for why you have these discriminatory policies against gay and lesbian people um, and now allies in the book. So, um, so it, and he, I know he really thought that it would pass. We did not think it would pass just because mm. Um, of the history of voting and watching the other side, um, but we were, you know, we weren't we weren't winning anything. So it was like, let's try this and see. And um, for the reasons I just stated, it, the uh, the other side would never have gone for it. You know, they mm. you it would have been in their mind we would have been taking a brick out of their their the edifice that they had built and. Uh, signaling that things were changing and things were arch were changing, but they, you know, just think of 2012 mm -hmm. then and mm -hmm. think about where we are now. And yeah. you, yes, on the one hand, you got your the legislation that you always wanted passed in 2019. 
and it uh, you caused the greatest upheaval in the United Methodist Church that has happened since probably the 1950s. You know, uh, and you you brought us to the edge of schism because people, the, both the way it was done and what was said, people were not prepared to accept that. And so, and the fact that it's like publicized, <laughs> like you really heinous behavior, mm. saying heinous things caught on t TV and carried by every major newspaper around the world. So it was just like you you have overshot. And and uh, as the conservative, the good news folks would say, what we learned from that is you can impose all the rules that you want and people will no longer abide by them, including bishops. Mm -hmm. And so therefore this edifice that we have been building of more and more exclusionary rules is no longer sufficient because you know, large parts of the church have now declared that they're not going to abide by them. And so it's like, so keep building the edifice if you if you want, but we're not going to listen anymore. And not just the, you know, the radical affirmation people, but all these other people are just not going to live into it. Uh, and so, and, you know, after 2019, the movement was very shaky. And there was lots of questions about, should we stay in the church? But by and large, we decided that we would stay and fight like hell. Mm -hmm. And I think that was surprising to the folks on the other side as well. They really did think that they would deliver a knockout punch where we would like leave and go off to the UCC or some other place. And it, that's not how it happened. Not at all. Um, yeah. Uh, so, and they were already kind of thinking about, you know, there, there had been an effort before at um, schism and, you know, we learned that Good News had a white paper or a draft concept paper about schism for the last 20 years. And so, um, yeah, so we, we learned a lot, I think. Uh, and so it, it is like ironic that we are in this place where, where at least theoretically uh, moderates and or centrists and uh, progressives are staying and some reasonable conservatives and uh, it's the hard right that's going away, uh, which I don't think yeah. anybody would have predicted uh, 10 years ago, so. Not at all. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley Survival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.